I remember talking to the special agent in charge of the Bay Area field office about a job that I applied for at the FBI. And she called me and she said, we can't hire you. Like you were the, you were the one, but we couldn't hire you. And I'll never forget it. I was standing in the parking lot on a pier in San Francisco. And I was okay with her telling me that. Human, the designer. Hello, and welcome to the podcast Human, the designer, a show where we explore the human behind the professional, what makes them passionate about their work, and what drives them to become better. With you is your host, Angelos. And I am your other host, Eve. And today, we'll be welcoming our first ever guest on the show, and we're kind of excited. She is the co-founder of DesignOps Assembly and now a consultant working with companies worldwide to implement DesignOps with their organizations. Prior, she spent five years at Pinterest, where she started and grew the DesignOps team into an internationally renowned team, while also being instrumental in growing and building the Pinterest product design team. You can listen to her discussing DesignOps on the Design Better podcast, or check out the DesignOps handbook. We're going to post the links, of course, in the notes of this show. People, please give a warm welcome to Meredith Black. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming here. Uh, this is exciting. Welcome, welcome. As I said, you are our first um, guest. Wow, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you so much. So what we're aiming to do in this uh, show is to kind of like get to know the person behind the, the professional, you know, and uh, we would like to, you know, get to know your origin story into the world of design. Like, how did you get there? But also... Uh, what shaped you to become who you are, like even from your um, early childhood, for example. So how do, you, how do you trace your creativity back to your childhood? So that's an interesting question. I think I had a very unique childhood in which both of my parents were creatives and they were both in the advertising world. Um, so at a very young age, while most people are, uh, you know, playing with dolls and hanging out outside, my parents were talking to me at the dinner table about, you know, what impressions were, what ad impressions were in the newspaper, and you know, what what commercials were on, and uh, and so forth. So it was. Uh, I've always looked at creativity, I think, in a in a little bit of a different lens, um, just because I've seen it from the back end, I think a little bit more than some people have seen it. Um, so, you know, that being said, my mom, uh, you know, went to school for graphic design. So she was always very encouraging on, you know, arts and crafts and, and, you know, doing stuff with your hands. So I think it just kind of, um, you know, came from her, so to speak, in terms of being, you know, being interested in being creative. And I think, you know, there's kind of three things that I was interested about in, in childhood. Uh, one was creativity, two was animals, and three was true crime. Um, so <laughs> how, do you, um, how do you combine those passions, I guess, right? And so, you know, always really creative in, in grade school and high school. And then um, I was really interested in, in true crime, and I went to school for criminology, actually. Um, and I wanted to, you know, catch the bad guys, so to speak. However, um, after college, it was a really interesting time. I'm probably dating myself, but, uh, it was right after nine 11 and, you know, government organizations were looking for a very specific type of person, somebody who had, you know, experience with middle Eastern languages, um, accounting backgrounds, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So not the typical criminology background. So it was a little hard to kind of get into that field. And I thought to myself, okay, well, while I'm trying, where else would I be interested in, in working? And what would make me want to get up every day, so to speak? And so, of course, I started applying for advertising agencies. And my mom was like, don't do it. And sure enough, I just, <laughs> I ignored her and I did it. And uh, she's like, it's going to be exhausting. And I still ignored her and I did it. And so, you know, started out at the very 
bottom ranks of the company at small advertising agencies, you know, as a, as an account person, and then, um, you know, kind of moved my way up. And then I had this really unique opportunity to work at IDEO. Um, mm. And so interviewed at IDEO, had been in the creative world for a little while. And that, you know, I, I got the job, thank goodness. And uh, that really kind of introduced me to the world of design, product design, interaction design, systems designs, um, you know, because IDEO spans the gamut of, of the work they do with companies around the world. So at that point, I decided, wow, I really like this. I really like where this is going. I really like using my background of understanding people mm -hmm. in a different way and learning what makes people tick and how people use products and, you know, the internet and how can I help make it better? Yeah. So that was kind of my crazy transition. That's, that's very cool. And I would be quite interested to, to know from, from your point of view, uh, how did you combine the learnings of the criminology part into design? I'm guessing there's a lot of research skills that goes into mm -hmm. that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of research skills and there's a lot of, you know, sociology specifically yeah. is, you know, the understanding mm -hmm. and, and studying of, of people in their environment. Right. And so you're constantly understanding, you know, why, why groups do the things that they do, why people interact that the way they do, what, what drives people in society. And so I actually thought it was a pretty easy and clear transition, mm. you know, take out the crime part. You know, I wasn't analyzing designers and thinking they were criminals, but, um, sometimes, you know, yeah, sometimes, <laughs> right. Um, design crimes, um, that could be a whole other podcast. Exactly. So I think for me, it was, how do I take the skill set that I've learned and understanding people and understanding how people tick and transferring that into design, which is a lot of what user experience is, right. Mm. Understanding how people use products, what they need help with, how to make things better and, and how to make it seamless. So people aren't struggling with everyday life, right? Yeah. And how things are designed that we use all of the time. Did you have any like um, hobbies also or um, other kind of like classes that you might take in that they were more on the arts or design uh, related uh, mm -hmm. fields uh, while you were younger? Oh, yeah. I think my hands were always in, in something. I always wanted to try new things, whether it was pottery or drawing or I, I attempted to try to knit. Um, so knitting, you know, stitching, hand stitching, anything to do. I mean, especially as a child with crayons or, you know, mm -hmm. colored you know, construction paper. I think I was kind of always the person that always had to keep my hands busy, you know, when you're out to dinner and you're eating dinner and I'm the kid that really needed to have the coloring book and, <laughs> and have the grands or, or be drawing on the tables. Um, just because yeah. that's where my mind went. I needed, I needed a, an outlet for what was in my brain. And so for me, it was, it was doing all of that. I wouldn't say I'm the greatest artist, so to speak, but you know, I sure, I sure tried. Were there any projects from from your childhood that you like vividly remember something that you know something your parents really recognized in you or something or when you think back to it really nice memories i think for me and this is this would probably be what maybe a lot of people say but i was also very interested in the hustle and the business side of things at a very young age so while some people were probably outside you know playing on their scooters i was the one you know making the signs for the lemonade stand or you know selling the girl scout cookies on the corner um you know with the big signs and the for sale and you know like and really hustling and you know making the neighbors feel guilty <laughs> and forcing them to buy things so i think I don't know. I think I look back at that and I think that's really interesting because it was kind of like I got the business savvy at the same time I got to explore the creativity. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. How was the, um, the professional life coming from the uh, small ad agency world into joining a, a team in, in EDEO, for example, and yeah. getting introduced into the world of, of, of design? 
Yeah, I, it was very eye-opening. I feel like my time at IDEO was kind of like um, a graduate degree, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, because you're constantly learning new things. You're learning about new companies and you're learning about what problems need to be solved. And you're surrounded by so many different types of people and designers with an IDEO. You know, it's, you know, you're, you're surrounded by mechanical engineers, industrial designers, UX designers, it runs the gamut. And I think that's why I think it was probably the greatest education I could ever receive is, is having to interact firsthand with all of these people and all these different design professions kind of all coming together for the same purpose of making something better for, for human beings. Right. And so for me, I think, um, it was a, it was a, it was a great environment to thrive. I think also when you are surrounded by so many different types of creative people, there's kind of always a, um, there's always a desire for the, like those took those types of folks to to teach others, and so I thought mm-hmm. it was a very welcoming and warm environment. Where, whereas you know I knew a lot about ad campaigns and clicking on banners at the time on the internet and you know all of this stuff. Um, yeah. You know I jumped in and I was like, okay, like what what can I learn here and and what can you teach me? And so I think mm. I think the one takeaway is it's it's always okay to be a student, and it's always okay yeah. to ask a bunch of questions. Um, and don't be scared to do that because that's the only way you're going to learn. And I think people are much more generous with their time and their expertise than we give people credit for. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I, uh, when people ask me, you know, what was the most important thing you learned from university? Right. And it's this, this kind of, you learn how to learn kind of aspect. So I, I, I'm just reflecting on that with you right now and this, this uh, your experience at IDEO, how it wasn't just about learning what design is about maybe, but also just the whole sense of learning from others and being part of this coaching and teaching, but also being a sponge at the same time. Right. Right. And I think, you know, to add to that, I think I took that mentality into the other companies I went into. Right. And I think it was for me a really positive approach is, you know, I think all of us have imposter syndrome and, you know, we fake it until we make it. And I I kind of just threw caution to the wind and, and said, you know what? If I don't know something, I'm just gonna ask. What's yep. the what's the worst that can happen? Somebody's gonna say, I don't have time to answer that, you know, but most of the time that doesn't happen. Um, you know, I think I think also the one thing that's really interesting is that there was this perception growing up and maybe not particularly, you know, in my family, so to speak, since, you know, I was fortunate enough to have be surrounded by creative people, but, you know, in general, when you talk about being in a creative environment, people don't necessarily think of that as a career, right? They think, Oh, that's a hobby. That's a pastime, or that's something that you do after work. You know, you're expected to, go to your nine to five, output a bunch of Excel spreadsheets, you know, punch out, clock out, and then you can have fun. And I think the one thing that was incredibly eye-opening, especially at IDEO and then, you know, at Hot Studio and where I went afterwards was that work can be fun and creativity can be fun. And just because you're doing something that's creative doesn't mean you aren't doing a profession and it is, you know, that it is a career, so to speak. Mm. And so I think, I think a lot of the world still grapples with that. Unless you're in a creative environment, people are still like, oh, well, that's not that serious of a job or, Mm. oh, you couldn't get paid to do that, you know? And that's, (laughs) that's actually not true. And I think with the, you know, creation of the internet and with, you know, Silicon Valley starting to adopt and respect design a lot more, Mm. it's enabled a lot of companies to, foster creative environments, whereas that might have not been possible 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to kind of have the best of both worlds, the business and the creative side of things and and be happy and content with their lives. That is true. And uh, I I remember from the the previous, uh, the first episode that we've done with with Eve, that we were both talking about our um, early 
creativity traces and yeah. the realization from kind of like where you are, uh, me juggling ar around with uh, letters and graffiti and Eve, like being a hands-on person with uh, a lot of like uh, crafts and, and mechanical parts to actually realizing that, hey, wait a minute, I could actually get paid from this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, and it's a big realization that you can, you can think about it and say like, okay, it is actually a legit career move if I put the effort. Yeah, I mean, th thinking about that, like you think of some of these graffiti artists like Banksy, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, some people think of this as, you know, obscenities on the side of a wall, but it's turned into this entire respected art form. And yeah. people are inspired by that. And people are kind of following those trajectories. And I think, I think you're right. I think there's a lot more possibilities than, than people give themselves credit for in order to do something that they love and not just yeah. live to work. Yeah. That, that, that reminds me of a, a question that came up from last time, which I forgot to look into. Was there ever a moment in your, you know, learning about design and, and learning about what to do in the world for your own career where you realized that this is something that you like doing, mm -hmm. but that going uh, going on further in this, that there might have been a fear, at least there was at some point for, for me, a fear that if this becomes my job, I might lose interest in the, the fun side of it. So, you know, mm. uh, so what I'm kind of wondering is, have you ever had that dilemma where you go, should I continue with this as my work, being scared to lose it at some point because it just becomes repetitive or whatnot? Uh, or should I actually go for it and see what happens, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I'll give you two examples. Um, one of when I decided I was really going to go for it early on in my career was at IDEO. I remember standing in the parking lot um, talking to the special agent in charge of the Bay Area field office about a job that I applied for at the FBI. And she called me and she said, hey, I'm so sorry to do this. Our budget's been slashed. You know, it's been, you know, we don't, we can't fund this role anymore. Like we, we chose you, but we can't, we can't hire you. Like you were the, you were the one, but we couldn't hire you. Mm. And she's like, so if, if, if you're still interested in this career path, you're going to have to apply for other jobs as they come up. And I'll never forget it. I was standing in the parking lot on a pier in San Francisco because IDEO is on a pier. And I was okay with her telling me that, you know, I mean, of course I was disappointed, but at the same time I was like, you know what? That's okay. I really like where I'm at right now. And I like who I'm working with. And I like the problems that I'm given every day to try to solve. Yeah. And at that point, that was, that was a very pivotal point where I said, okay, I'm going to stop pursuing anything related to criminology and I'm going to keep furthering my education with design and pivot. And, you know, at that point I was like, I can still always listen to crime podcasts and read books about crime and, you know, be interested in the economist and world affairs and all of this stuff. Like I can yeah. do that now as my hobby, but I want my work to be design related. And so yeah. it was that mental shift. And of course it was terrifying, right? The one thing that I thought was fun and, you know, sparked my, my creative flow every day is something that I was going to do now every single day and really commit to a career in this, not just a job, but a career. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, of course it was scary, but it was also very exciting. And it was kind of like a, fr it was a fresh start. And I think having the opportunity to do it with ID at IDEO was even better, right? Because as I said before, it was a very welcoming and open, yeah. open environment where you could do that and you could explore things. Um, so that's example number one. Example number two is that when I started working at Facebook, you know, I was commuting an hour and a half each way to work and design ops wasn't really a thing at Facebook yet, right? Hot Studio was bought by Facebook. And so some of the producers or ops people 
went to Facebook, but there wasn't an actual role yet, right? And so a couple of sort of just kind of, you know, figuring out where we want to go within this company. And so, you know, I wasn't, I was, I was being challenged at work, but I wasn't being creatively challenged. Um, and I, I needed an outlet. And so for me, my three favorite things in the world are true crime, animals, and design. So what, like, what could I do with some of that? And so I had a dog who, she's no longer with us, but she was very much loved, Bella, who um, was my world. And I always bought new dog collars for her. Like once a month, mm-hmm. I was like, nope, yeah. it's like an outfit change. We're going to get you a new dog collar. Yeah. But what I realized is that dog collars in the world are ugly. And so, <laughs> and there's, and there's like a quality issue and, you know, like, I don't know, I found it really hard. And I think because I started becoming more trained and as a designer, I became very particular about aesthetic and there just wasn't anything out there that I was like thrilled about. You know, I didn't want Bella with like black and pink polka dots on her neck. And so I thought to myself, okay, how can I, how can I take this problem that I have and turn it into a solution? And so how can I take my love for animals and my love for creativity and do something with it? And so I started reverse engineering how to make dog collars. And so I figured out, you know, through Pinterest and YouTube and, all sorts of websites and cutting apart different dog collars, what they were made of, where I could buy the hardware, where I could buy what type of webbing, what type of materials I needed to use, all of this, and make my own. And so I started prototyping like a, you know, typical designer. Um, and after, you know, probably several hundred and teaching myself how to sew, nonetheless, yeah, yeah, yeah. never knew how to sew, right? And so, um, you know, you know, bought, bought what I thought was the best sewing machine out there at the time for what I could afford. And I went home every night and I taught myself how to do that. That was my outlet. That was my challenge. And so sure enough, a few, a few years later, I was at Pinterest. I started telling people that I was making dog collars. There was an interest. I started selling them at, you know, the cafe at Pinterest. I would start selling them at, um, you know, we would have, uh, pop-up events at Pinterest. And so I was always throwing my hand up being like, let me sell my dog collars. And so it became this side hustle, right? Mm-hmm. A lemonade stand, right? Yeah, it was my lemonade stand. And what's really interesting is, is people would be like, oh, well, what's your hobby? And I say, oh, I make dog collars. And that's so random, right? People don't expect to hear that coming out of your mouth. They go, oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really into pottery or I like to you know, I like to paint. And this was something that was very different. And yeah. when I left Pinterest, I, I was, I, you know, I, I wanted to get more serious with it, right? I wanted to get more serious with something that I was really passionate about. But like you just said, Eve, what's the point where you want to do it every day? And it doesn't become, it doesn't feel like work, right? It still mm. is something that is a creative outlet. And so, I think honestly, that's something I'm struggling with right now is I'm making them. I have a website. I'm on Etsy. I'm selling them in five shops in, in you know, oh. my area. Um, you know, I'm getting orders regularly, you know, not enough to, you know, pay the bill, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. But like, it's still this fun side hustle where there's a demand for it. And I think money aside, the greatest joy out of all of this is seeing random dogs walking down the street with something that I've made on their necks. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's something so satisfying and rewarding about that. And so I think, you know, right now, as I transition kind of into this kind of next chapter of my life, it's like, do I want to keep it the size that it is, or do I want to grow it into something that could potentially be much bigger, but will I be happy doing that? And yeah. will, will that, keep me creatively satisfied. And I will say there are days where I love the making part of it. I actually physically love making them, sitting at the sewing machine. I'm listening to a true crime podcast. I'm making my dog collars. But then there's days where I'm like, oh, I hate the social media. I hate, you know, writing invoices to stores. I I, I hate all that other stuff. And so I think that's like a quintessential creative 
person problem, right? Mm-hmm. As we like to make, but we don't like. How can I outsource all the other boring stuff? Exactly. Documentation and billing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, like, I have somebody harassing me right now to send them an invoice. And I'm like, oh, I don't even want to charge you. Just take them, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Which now brings us perhaps to, to the next question uh, that I would like to ask. And is, uh, how did you end up in the path that led you to your current uh, career, perhaps not on the uh, dog collar side, but uh, <laughs> on, on wh- where you are in the design operations uh, yeah. community, but also field, because we also talked about outsourcing the boring stuff. So I think that's a yeah. natural uh, <laughs> natural segue. segue to... Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. It's funny that I'm, I'm saying I hate doing the invoicing and the social media and all of that stuff. And I think... I think it's fu- it's funny that I say that because at the same time, I'm also really passionate at doing that stuff for companies and for other people, mm-hmm. just not for what I'm working on. And mm-hmm. I think, I think I don't know. Maybe I just mentally have drawn a line between, yeah. you know, what I want to do and what I didn't. But you know, design ops is this really interesting field that has sort of blown up in the last few years. And I think a lot of people out there like me, were working at agencies or we're working at design firms where, you know, people were running accounts or managing projects or producing projects. And that that's how you run these businesses. And I think what's really interesting is that the corporate side of the world or the private sector um, didn't really, didn't really have that, uh, that role, so to speak. And so for me, I think it was really, I think it was serendipitous, um, kind of right place, right time, where I was working at Hot Studio. Hot Studio had been acquired by Facebook, as I had mentioned before. There were a few of us that went over there. And, you know, I had the opportunity to work with some amazing people at Facebook who really respected the role of design ops. But at the same time for me, I was I was more in charge of transitioning 65 designers into Facebook. Mm. So, you know, who to put on what projects, who's going to work well with which project managers and which engineers, how to introduce design to engineering, because at the time there were only a couple designers and an entire organization, and we were introducing 65 new ones to that organization, how to merge the cultures, how, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there was so much that was going on that, that at the time I wasn't producing projects per se, or project managing, I was helping with integrating, you know, a huge acquisition for Facebook. Um, And so I I was learning a ton and I was learning all of the sides of the business that I don't think I would have ever learned if I wasn't at a a company like Facebook or, or a tech company, so to speak, because on the advertising and the design side of things, you are project based. You only go in and you learn about the project. You don't learn about the dynamics of the company. You don't learn about how they make money. You don't learn about staffing and resourcing and project roadmaps you don't it's just it's not in your purview right like that's that's not why you're hired and so how is an incredibly again like another i feel like that was like my business degree um and learning how to really mix business and design and how to bring in design into a, a corporate culture um and you know it was around that time where I knew some people at Pinterest and um, Pinterest had just started becoming a thing, so to speak, right? It was Mm. still at the time where you could scroll down to the bottom of your Pinterest feed and there was nothing left and you had to like wait a day to get more pins. Um, (laughs) You know, you're like, oh, I've seen everything. Like I got to wait another day to see like who else is pinning stuff. And I just thought it was a really cool product. And I just, for me, it was just so inspiring and, and so creative and, I was like, wow, this is the best of both worlds. Like working in a creative environment, but also creating a creative environment for other people, like kind of meta, if you think about it. Yeah. Um, and so Bob Baxley, um, who had recently left Apple, had come to Pinterest as the head of design at the time, and he wanted somebody to help run operations. And so again, I feel like right place, right time met him, we gelled really well. The design team was only 10 product designers at the time. And um, 
it was a leap of faith and I could have stayed at a really safe company, right? Where I could have just risen the ranks, done my thing, you know, helped build out a design ops team or it could take a risk and help build a really big design team and work on a product I was using every day and really passionate about. So that's, that's how I got into ops and helped build that practice and that role at, at Pinterest. Hmm. And, you know, at the same time, there were a couple other companies, not many who were trying to do the same thing, who had done design acquisitions, who had brought all these designers in house, but didn't know how to project manage them. Didn't know how to have interactions between, you know, product management, engineering and design and how those relationships could work fluidly. So, you know, I think that's where I met Elise, who's, you know, my co-founder of Design Ops Assembly is basically we didn't know what we were doing and we needed to figure it out. So instead of trying to do it alone, we started leveraging each other. And then sure enough, Mm -hmm. more companies and more people were like, oh, this role is kind of something now, or, oh, we need this too. And so I think through advocacy and through relationship building, we've now helped build what is design ops within organizations, right? And, you know, not to say we take all the credit for this, not at all. I think there's a ton of people that were in our roles, but nobody was being defined the same way until five or six years ago, where the definition of design ops became a thing. And so people who had been in our roles were like, oh, well, yeah, I do that too. Oh, well, yeah, I do that too. And so it became a much easier conversation because people actually did have the skill set. They just weren't articulating it the way that I think people would um, understand or receive it as as a bonus to a team mm-hmm. um, to run efficiently and not, um, you know, just shoving process down down people's throats, so to speak. Yeah, I remember reading about design ops uh, back in the day, like uh, as you said, like five or six years ago. And I think like the first articles that came up was uh, you. It was uh, Dave. And then a combination of you in the, um, uh, what was it? The Design Better uh, book on design ops later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also remember uh, on a talk by Christine Skinner when and they were talking about the uh, acquisition of um, Adaptive Path from, yeah. from Capital One. And basically, you know, having this very sudden input of designers inside a uh, a bank that perhaps didn't have before. I'm, I'm not sure if they had or not, but uh, but then they were, you know, they were very concerned about whether this investment is gonna pay out. And as you yeah. said, you know, they they really needed the operational part, and uh, and luckily, I think they were as well able to recognize right from the beginning that you know we do have these skill sets because perhaps they were coming from them ad agency where they had to manage projects anyway, like, or, or studio management or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, quite, quite interesting. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's Kristen Skinner and Peter Merholtz putting that book out really put design ops on the map, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They, you know, at the time, I don't even think design ops was labeled design ops, but they were thinking about all of the problems that all of these other organizations had had. And, you know, adaptive path was bought, um, by Capital One right before Hot was bought by Facebook. Then Fjord was bought. I mean, you just go down the list. There were so many design firms that were bought at the same time or around the same time because these companies realized we need designers to make our products better. It was this like aha moment that I don't I don't know what clicked, but something clicked and it came very fast. Yeah. And so Kristen and Peter writing that book to educate people on what org design was and how to implement it, I think really fostered and led the path for design ops to become credible and valid um, yeah. in the world of design. So I give them a lot of credit for them being, you know, the godmother and godfather of uh, all things <laughs> org design, so to speak. Yeah, true, true. And um, I, I usually, um, Finally, I say that uh, it is the the Bible of design ops people, because I remember like reading it and then basically, 
I was reading it on my Kindle, so uh, I was highlighting in a digital sense, but I basically was highlighting the whole book, uh, like, you know, paragraph after paragraph and writing notes on the side because I could relate to every single piece that they were writing on. And it, it was just crazy. I was like, uh, I, I had an epiphany every, you know, five minutes in that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I called it the uh, the design Bible too. That's what I call it too. I think a lot of people call it that just because it's it's so it's it's so good to reference. I think, you know, and I, I give them such major props for writing that book because things change so fast. And mm. I think, you know, one of the things is there is a design ops book coming out that Kristen Skinner is actually going to be yes. writing. And again, I think it's so brave of her to be writing it because things are changing so fast. And how do you write something down that could change six months later? And so I think having her kind of put a line in the sand, I think is going to be really great. And I think Mm. is going to help anchor a lot of companies and a lot of people um, in terms of how to get design ops started within their organizations and how to keep momentum. So I'm really excited to to see her doing this and, and to come out with this book. I think it's going to be a game changer. Exactly. Yes. Let's let's actually plug this uh, book because I think a lot of people will be interested into it. So the book is called The Essential Guide to Design Operations, and it's going to be published by uh, Rosenfeld Media, uh, good friends there as well. Mm-hmm. And Chris Skinner, of course, is going to be the author, and we are all very excited. Uh, Angelos and I have a have a bit of a balance here that I, I'm trying to get the basics out of just the human side, and Angelos yeah. knows a lot about the the theory of of design ops, whereas yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering maybe if you're looking at the whole aspect of design ops and getting to know people, mm-hmm. um, you know, the human psyche, what are those elements about, you know, we're all just human. Yeah. We're all just people interacting with each other. Where does that come for you? Oh, I think I I mean I think you've you kind of nailed it as part of an essential piece of what design ops is all about, to be honest. I think 90% of what design ops is, if you're in a design ops role, is relationships and working with humans and understanding how people work and how to help them work faster, more efficient and inspire them, right? And so I think there's a lot of operation stuff the Excel spreadsheets, the invoices, yeah. the org charts, all of that stuff that that are done amazingly by design ops people and they get a ton of credit for it um, or they should get a ton of credit for it. But I think at the end of the day, if you don't have the relationships, you're not going to be able to put any of the process in place. Um, You can't force process down people's throats. You can't force them to do something because I think with anybody who has a creative background, they're going to look at you and say, don't tell me what to do, right? Nobody likes to be told what to do, um, especially creatives and engineers. <laughs> I'm married to one, so I can say that. And, uh, but, but it's so important to build that foundation. And I think the first thing that I always recommend doing when I'm talking and coaching people who are starting design ops in companies is get to know who you're working with, get to know what the needs are and understand the human aspect before you do anything else. Just listen, you know, build those relationships, let people know that you're there to support them and not force them to do things. You're there to make their lives better, especially designers lives. Um, And so I think building those relationships and giving, giving clarity to people is really important. I think for me, Maybe sometimes I err too much on the human side and I care maybe too much about how people's emotions are, are, you know, that day. But I also Mm -hmm. feel like if you work with somebody every single day, you are going to build emotional connections with them. And I think some of your greatest work can be done by building that strong foundation and those connections. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking that, you know, it's, it's very easy for, uh, especially people just learning what design ops means and just, just in any field to get lost in the theory and get lost in, these are the tools you have to use and these are the mm-hmm. methods. And, and then you, you you stick to them and say, well, according to page 74, uh, article three or whatever, right? this is what we should be doing. And then losing that idea of, wait a second, let's take a step back and this is just a person in front of me. And everybody makes mistakes and, you know. 
Yeah, I think it's like one of like foundation 101 of being in design ops is that you need to understand your audience, you need to understand who you're working with, and you need to understand how people tick, and you need to understand what their needs are, right? Um, and at the end of the day, I think that anybody in a design ops role should should practice servant leadership. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. You don't have to be a people manager or a manager to practice servant leadership, but practice leadership by telling and showing others that you're there for them and that you are there to help them out. And I think if you come in with that mentality, you are going to be so much more successful than bringing in a playbook that says, this is what we're going to do this week. This is what we're going to do that week. And I think setting people's expectations who are going into design ops and letting them know that it doesn't mean that you're not getting things done. It means that you're understanding the psychology of your team and understanding how they're going to be successful and taking that research approach, so to speak, before implementing things. And the other thing is, is that this role is changing all of the time. Your mm-hmm. your role as a design ops leader or a design ops program manager is going to constantly change and you need to be okay with ambiguity. You can't go in having a list of things that you're going to check off at the end of the day and feel like you're done, you can go home. Organizations are going to grow. They're going to change. Your team's going to grow. It's going to change. Roadmaps are going to change. And so people are going to change. People are going to come and go. So you need to be the one that's okay with the ambiguity and be the calm in the storm, so to speak, and keep everybody else on the ship and safe. That's no small responsibility. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's a very, um, it can be a very um, overlooked job, right? Yeah. I think that the role of a design ops person is also to protect designers from, you know, stressing out or seeing too much mm-hmm. or knowing mm-hmm. that things are going to change until things are actually final, right? Change is constant. And if there's one thing that is constant, it's going to be change. And so mm-hmm. be okay with that and know that, yeah, it's a lot of pressure. Um, and it can be very unrewarding and overlooked sometimes. But I think while it can be very rewarding and it can also be a lot of pressure to be in the role of, you know, maintaining composure. Um, I think design ops people find gratification in other ways. And Mm. I think they, um, you know, they're kind of the unsung heroes. And when things go well, it's very rewarding. When things don't go well, you know that you haven't done your job well. And so I think as long as things go well, that's kind of rewarding in itself. And I think anybody who's in this role definitely has a camaraderie with other people in design ops and we kind of boost each other up and support each other, even if nobody else kind of sees what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. doing a lot of the unquantifiable stuff, but I was reading another article about uh, actually people in the engineering world who in a way have the same position as design ops people too. And I'm not referring to uh, DevOps or, or uh, the technical side of, uh, of the engineering part, But um, what one article was saying was that some people inside the companies are the glue. And this is work that is never recognized. It's never quantifiable or you cannot put any metrics on it. But it's one of the most important parts of the work that is, you know, invisible inside an organization. Absolutely. And it's invaluable, right? I mean, I think, I sometimes think, I, 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 I think back to... And I've mentioned this before is um, one of the product managers I, I started working with at Pinterest. It never worked with a design ops person. And after a few months, he looked at me and was like, I don't know what you do, but I'd be lost without you. And it was <laughs> kind of like, ah, yeah, you know, you're, you're keeping the wheels going and, and yeah. you're doing a lot of stuff that I think a lot of people don't want to do or don't have the energy to do or have the time to do. And I think that's also really important is that in design ops, you understand designers, you understand the psychology of designers, you understand that they don't work the same way as say somebody who's, you know, out of college with an MBA. It's just like, it's a different working style, not to say that anything is right or wrong. It's just different. And so I think being able to understand the business side of the house and the creative side of the house is a true asset because you're, you're the bridge that's going to connect the two. Yeah. It was making me wonder about your because I, I, I mentioned before that this is no small responsibility. Mm-hmm. And you were just mentioning also that 
you know, it can be quite a lot that you get on, uh, get from around you that you have to deal with and keep composure. And so I was wondering kind of two things. One, like, how are you maybe emotionally in that role? And mm -hmm. what does it do to you? And how you're, you're still loving the role, but at the same time, it's probably very tough at, at moments. And then secondly, I was wondering, is this something, because I can imagine that it can be a very lonely position as well at some points. Is it something that could be done by more people? Is it done by more people? Um, you know, is, is that something you, you have a shared responsibility over? Uh, what is your current sense and what is the ideal sense that you could see in a, in a future maybe? Well, so it's interesting that you bring that up and I don't mean to necessarily plug Design Ops Assembly, but that's exactly why Elise and I started Design Ops Assembly is it was a very lonely world. There were only, you know, 10 or 12 of us at the time doing this. And while we congregated and we, you know, we knew each other as a group and we were starting to meet with each other, we were like, there's other people in this role too. And we've got to build a community of people who are going to be able to support each other and who are going to be able to build this role together because you can't, you shouldn't go it alone. And there's no use in recreating the wheel on a lot of this stuff. And so that's why we actually started Design Ops Assembly is more to build a community of people who had very similar backgrounds and were trying to do the exact same things that we were doing. I think from a personal standpoint and something that I look back on, you know, post post Pinterest is um, it's okay to take care of yourself in these situations. And I think a lot of people, especially in this role, especially the unsung heroes, they go into these roles, or at least I went into these roles, because I don't need a lot of credit. I don't need a lot of like gratification. I just, I thrive on getting things done. And I thrive, you know, on the high of like the fast paced environment, you know, but at the end of the day, you do need a little bit of love. And I think there's a point where you need to take a step back and realize what you're doing this for and why you're doing it and if it's worth it and kind of set your expectations as to how you're going to navigate this kind of stressful, stressful career. And I think for me when, with my team is, hey, if you need a day off, take a day off. Or if you need a week off, take a week off, like give yourself permission to have an outlet and just not focus on all of this and give yourself permission also to, to have like human emotions and feel right. Like right. to know that yeah. it's okay to know that things are going to be stressful or to know that things are, yeah. are really at a great, at a great, you know, point in your career within the design organization. But number one is take care of yourself. And I, I mean, you could say that across any profession, but I also think there's this expectation to, and, and especially within tech to always be on and to, always keep going and faster, faster, faster. But if, you know, it's the quintessential example of if you're on an airplane and the airplane's going down, you got to put your life or you got to put your, your life vest or your, or your, you know, air mask on first yeah. before yeah. you're going to help anybody else or else you and everybody else is going to go down. Yeah. So exactly. I think, I think that's, that's the one thing I still kind of preach um, to this day is it's okay not to be perfect. And it's okay to give yourself a break. Does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah, um, definitely the emotional side and the personal side. The uh, the lonely side. I was also just wondering if it is just a one person job, or if it's if it is something that you could see as a multiple people. Well, I definitely think as multiple people. I mean, well, I think it depends on the organization, right? Yeah. I think. At Pinterest, of course, I, it, the team was so small that it was me. And I think I actually personally really liked that. And I actually recommend that for somebody to come in and assess the situation, assess what the team needs yeah. um, before bringing anybody else on. But I also think you're the one that's got to sell the role and you're the one that's got to advocate for more people. And if you do it well, you're going to get more people. And if people adopt to what your practices are and what, what you are delivering on a daily basis and you're advocating for it, people will, will follow pretty fast to go, Oh, I'd rather have a design ops person than another designer on my team. You know, I'd rather make that trade off. And so I, I think there are a lot of organizations and probably a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who don't have 
the ability to add more people quite yet. And so for those people, I would say leverage people in your community and leverage people at other companies as your, as your cohort, so to speak of people that you can rely on and talk to about this until you can build your own organization or until you can go to an organization that has that. And some companies are always going to be small and there's never, there's never a surefire answer. Yes. You're going to get more people or there's, you're going to build this into a huge practice, but that doesn't mean that you can't aspire to that or make that a goal within your company. Yeah, exactly. I, I like how you made our podcast looking like uh, a lot of people are listening to it. Thank yes, you for that. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes. Moving on, we're going to take a break. And when we're back, we're going to continue with our next session. Welcome back. And so let's move to our next part of the show where uh, we will present interesting things like articles and stories that are happening around our community. And today uh, we have one that I picked while I was reading something uh, yesterday. So I was reading this great article by Rachel Postman from Salesforce, where she's introducing design ops to people who are interested or new to the field. And the name of the article was a pocket guide to design operations. We're gonna post this link and any other link that we talked about today in our show notes as well. I love how this article starts with the following quote by Miles Orkin, which for me sums up too well what design ops is all about. So, quote, if we want to make great experiences in our products, we have to feel great about the experience of making, end quote. So in this article, Rachel introduces eight facts about design ops, and those are what is design ops, why is design ops important, what are common design ops skills and superpowers, uh, what do you do exactly, (laughs) Uh, who does design ops, what are the different design ops roles, how does design ops fit within the org and where can I learn more? I'm not going to go through all of these questions in detail, but uh, I would like to raise a few points out of this article. So what is design ops? Rachel explains this, that uh, design operations practitioners understand that the experience of making is as important as making the experience. Design operations focusing on the how so that design can focus on the what. And uh, on the why design ops is important, Rachel writes that design organizations cannot effectively scale without strategic operational leaders experienced at solving ambiguous problems, anticipating evolving needs, navigating the changing tides of complex organizations and creating solutions that adapt to the changing technology, culture and pace. And um, the next uh, question which I find very interesting is one that is also still ambiguous to many people and uh, we a little bit also touched on this I guess on this podcast um, and is what the hell do you do <laughs> as a design ops person uh, for which in the article there's a great diagram uh, that shows the breadth and complexity of the job so there are so many aspects of uh, design team structure that design ops actually affects with their work and those are but not limited to communications, like doing business reviews, team updates, uh, newsletters, and so on, uh, guidelines and governance, things like touching up on brand guidelines, best practices, budget and policies, on community and culture building, things like being an external voice for the design team, uh, team health, recognition of designers, etc. But also many other areas, such as tools, systems, and processes, products and programs, partnerships, team growth, and such. Uh, Overall, really, really comprehensive article for for design operations. And uh, I would like also to ask your opinion, Meredith. First of all, do you often get the question, what are you actually doing at your job? Every day, all of the time. (laughs) I think that's uh, probably what every design ops person is, is dealing with, is what do you do and how do you do it? The easiest way to explain it is we do everything behind the scenes. Everything's Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. And that's also the very non-sexy things that we do. Whereas designers get to design, design ops people make the engine run, right? And so Rachel in this article, she does such a wonderful job of 
kind of explaining the role, explaining all of the different aspects of the role that you could do or that should be done within complex organizations. And, you know, and if you don't have design ops, what you should be focusing on. So I think, you know, if, if anybody hasn't read this article already, who's listening to this podcast, I definitely recommend it because it's, it's, she calls it a pocket guide, but I actually think it's pretty comprehensive in terms of explaining the role of design ops in the world today. Yeah. To close up, I would like to ask you, Meredith, what do you see the future of design ops being in the next few years? And perhaps additionally to that, what kind of trends do you see emerging within the profession itself? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think, I think design ops is here to stay. I think in the early days, it was more of a prototype in terms of, do we need one people or a group of people to help a design organization? Or is this something that should be taken on by designers themselves? I think as a profession and as the people within the role have proved that this role is needed. So I think it's here to stay. And I think that there's a lot of people who are becoming incredibly interested in pursuing a career in design ops. And there's also design leaders who are increasingly becoming more um, interested in learning what design ops is and how it can be instrumental in helping excel their design organization. So I think from that standpoint, it's here to stay, which I think is really great. I think it's formed a base of what the roles and responsibilities are. And I think it's only a matter of time before design ops becomes just as big of a component in a design organization as designers are. That being said, I think in the future, because now there is a solid base and because there is um, the need for design ops, what I really want to focus on the next couple of years and you know help the community with and learn from the community is how can we keep this a career, how can we keep this as a career with a career trajectory? Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of people who are officially defined as design ops for the last five, six, seven years. Where do you go from here? And the role of design ops is very ambitious. And the people who are within this role are very type A, very ambitious, you know, want to keep moving up in the world and in their career. And rightfully so. They want to know what's next. And so I think we need to help define what is next for people in design ops. So once they move into, you know, becoming a more senior design ops practitioner or, or leading an organization, what's next for them and not having it be kind of this, this glass ceiling right now of, Oh, if you become the head of design ops, there's nowhere else for you to go. That's, that's as high as you get. And I think, I think maybe the next thing is articulating the importance of design within organizations and articulating the importance of operations within organizations and how can maybe you take your experience from a design perspective and move it into a larger organization within a company, Mm -hmm. like a product organization, or is this just one step closer to becoming a COO and being able to operate an entire company? And I think that these are Mm -hmm. the conversations that people are hungry to have and that Mm -hmm. we should be having because like any profession, we want to make sure that there's not a ceiling. People have room to grow and the opportunity to succeed in something and not just stop, so to speak, mm. and, and be satisfied with that. So I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be a hot topic over the next few years. And while there are so many people just starting in design ops and probably aren't like, this isn't, this isn't top of mind for them. I think we need to be proactive yeah. and make sure that there is the proper path for people to have um, in the future. So that way we can keep people in this profession and keep people stimulated and keep this a successful profession or to keep people in this profession with clear standards and definitions of what that means. Hmm. I, I was, um, I was just wondering from the human, the designer, uh, perspective for you, um, uh, we, We've now heard the the future of where you would like to see or where you think design ops is headed. Mm-hmm. But what about you for yourself? Uh, what what does your kind of future look like at the moment? Well, uh, that's a great question. I think 
you know, for me, I left Pinterest and I wanted to, I wanted to take some time off. Honestly, I mean, if anybody who's worked in the tech world and has worked at a company pre-IPO, it's pretty crazy. Um, and mm. I wanted to practice what I preach and take care of myself as well. So while I was doing that, I also realized that like many people in our profession of design ops, I can't sit still and I want to help people. So right now, you know, I'm consulting and I'm, I'm, I'm coaching folks that are in their career path of design ops and helping them succeed. So I, for me, I personally find that incredibly rewarding. Um, I'm also volunteering right now um, with a nonprofit organization in the United States called U.S. Digital Response, where they are helping with the COVID crisis. And so they needed somebody on their health team to help with operations. And so I am helping, you know, short term pro bono to get their operations in place for the health team. So that way those designers and those project managers can be focusing on the importance of helping governments with the COVID crisis um, while I help them move faster and efficiently within their, within the nonprofit. So I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And just taking it day by day, you know. Okay, all right. So no, no, no big ideal goals on the horizon for in the next five years or something. You know, the the standard kind of question there. <laughs> yeah, you know, honestly, I think for me, I'm trying to rephrase that question a little bit, mm. and not trying from a human perspective, not trying to put so much pressure on myself to yep. Yep. Um, try to be somewhere else in the next five years, but to yep. truly be happy and feel fulfilled with what I'm doing exactly. and kind of taking things day by day. And I think with the pandemic and with everything that's going on in the state of our world right now, I think, you know, there's a lot of people reevaluating what happiness means and what is worth it and what is not. And I think I'm one of those billions of people reevaluating that right now. And I think that's okay. You know, I think, I think my expectations have shifted maybe from something grand to something more realistic and something fulfilling and satisfying. Yeah. Thank you for opening your heart and your mind to our questions. Thank you for having me. Giving us an inside look to who Meredith really is. <laughs> Thank you. I really exactly. enjoyed this conversation. I could chat with you guys all day. <laughs> Likewise, uh, before we close, I would like to ask you if there's anything that you would like to plug. Uh, we were mentioning Design Ops Assembly. So how can people find that? How can they join? Yeah. So if you go to www.designopsassembly.com, um, we have a sign up page where you can sign up for our Slack channel and it's growing quite fast, which is, which is awesome. And Design Ops Assembly is basically a community-led organization where like-minded people who are interested in Design Ops or are part of the Design Ops community can come to talk and share resources and have that support and community that I think sometimes you don't feel like you have in your own companies if you're a team of one. Um, and you know, just keep checking checking out the events page where we have events once or twice a month and we have coffee chats and an opportunity to understand what it's like to be in design ops and, and learn from some of the, some of the folks who are um, in this role every day. So I would love it if you joined design ops assembly. Awesome. Uh, what about you, Eve, anything uh, interesting you would like to share? Um, I was just wondering if there's any last advice for those people who are, you know, into the, into the, perspective of making dog collars and that kind of thing you know I, I mean the what if you have that passion that that's if you have those three passions and you have that one passion side what do you do with that and and is there anything that comes up in mind I think because of where we are today it's really easy to find information about what you're curious about you know it's not like when we were kids and we had to go to the library to uh you know, check out a book to understand, you know, how to make something. Now there's YouTube videos and the internet and a wealth of information that, that we didn't have in the past. So I think, I think it never hurts to try something new and it's okay to fail. And I think as designers, we preach that every day, but sometimes we don't practice it ourselves in our personal lives. Exactly. And just like designing and prototyping things, it's okay to prototype what your passion is and you might succeed and you might fail, but you, you honestly don't know if you don't try. And so, 
you know, it could be, it could, it could be a year out of your life. It could be a weekend out of your life, but it's better. It's better to live your life going into things, knowing that you gave it a shot and were curious and led with a curious mind than to just think about it and not do it. And then, you know, sitting at the old folks home someday wondering, why didn't I try that? Why didn't I do that? You know? So, well, for me, it was dog collars for other people. It could be a myriad of things. And I think talk to people, go out and research it and just give it a shot. And at the end of the day, what's the worst thing that can happen? Didn't work out. Thank you for that. Exactly. Thank you again so much for joining us. It has been a real pleasure to get to know you and get advice also when it comes to design operations. From our part, we would like to remind people that they can find also Meredith's article along with articles by so far, Bob Buxley and uh, Alison Rand on jointfrontiers.com. And uh, in the future, you will find more articles there from all kinds of interesting people. And of course, if you're tuning into this podcast, you will be hearing more guests like Meredith joining us and sharing their own stories. Thank you, everyone. And see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.